from Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the science of survival. If you are stuck underwater in a submersible, what are the different ways to die? (laughs) Oh, so many. A while back, this guy named Taylor Zion sent me a book to read. I almost kind of enter like a brain freeze when you talk about how many different ways there are to die at death, right? Because, you know, there's, there's crushing, burning, you know, asphyxiation. Taylor is a maritime historian and shipwreck expert, and he'd written a thriller that takes place largely underwater in a stolen submarine. He told me the book was based on his real-world adventures, and he's trying to bring some authenticity back to the genre of underwater adventure novels. Oh, explosion. That's another big one. So today we're coming back from a break with a short piece about submarines, where almost every situation is a survival situation. In summary, being stuck underwater in a submarine is a very bad idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the surprising thing about the early days of submarines is just how early they really were. People were building submersibles and heading underwater before anyone even thought about settling the frontier. In fact, one of the earliest inventors was a wagon maker from Sussex, England, named John Day, who built not actually the first submarine, but one of the early ones, in 1774. You might consider him something of an unlikely candidate for posterity. The accounts from the time portrayed him as, you know, unable to read or write, didn't have a permanent home. He was uh, prone to depression and quick temper and, and just broke as well. Day was shy and not really one for spectacle. But he had this story that he told. He said that he had built a completely watertight compartment inside a fishing boat and that he'd sunk it to a depth of 300 feet and stayed there for 24 hours. Not that he could do this, but that he had done it. Of course, everyone he told wanted to see him do it again. So Day went to a guy named Christopher Blake, a wealthy gambler, and said that what he really needed to do this right was a bigger boat. So Blake fronted him the money to build a submarine. This is this is a guy who is just sort of like the town whack, <laughs> and he says, "I've built I've built something, and like come see it in action." Like th- that's sort of to summarize so far. Pretty much, yeah. This this was uh, this was going to be a big a big show, kind of you know a bit of a circus, you could say. Day purchased a fifty ton sloop. Her name was Maria. Uh, you've probably seen something of about the same size in, in you know, your local harbor at some point. Uh, so what he did was he created a box-shaped watertight compartment for himself. Uh, incidentally, boxes are not known for being the most watertight design. <laughs> There's a reason that submarines are not box-shaped. He put 30 tons of stones on board, and the idea was that he would sink to 300 feet, and after 24 hours he'd pull a lever and release 20 of those tons. If all went to plan, the Maria would rise victoriously to the surface. What he decided was he was going to hedge a little bit on this. He said, you know what, we're not going to do 300 feet. We're going to do 130, and let's say more like 12 hours and not a full 24 hours. He's immediately backpedaling, you're saying. (laughs) Just immediately. So, Day builds a submarine, and the town gathers to see it in action. It's June 22nd, 1774. The whole town is gathered at the harbor. There's a brass band, festivities, and the Maria is towed to a spot 130 feet deep. Uh, he goes inside with a candle, some biscuits, drinking water. He closes it. He seals it. Uh, the sea cocks are released, basically holes in the bottom of the boat, and it goes to sink immediately. 
Uh, it goes down so fast that the men on board that are helping him barely even have time to throw themselves off before it disappears under the water. And he was never seen again. <laughs> no way. Really? <laughs> yeah, 12 hours pass. The sloop doesn't come up to the surface again. Uh, they try to, to scour the bay with grapples. You know, basically drag the bay. See if they can find something. And that was it. They never found him. I feel bad now that we were laughing about this guy. <laughs> well, you know, physics are physics. That far below the surface, Day might have died from hypothermia or asphyxiation, but most likely he never reached the ocean floor. Basically, the Maria was airtight, but built to withstand one atmosphere of pressure. That's the weight of all the air in the atmosphere pressing down on you, about 14 pounds per square inch. But water is more dense and weighs significantly more than air. At 130 feet, the Maria would have had to withstand five times the pressure she was designed for. Most likely she imploded well before she even got that deep. And that was it. That's the, that's the end of the story of John Day. That is the short, tragic story of John Day. John Day was the first recorded fatality involving a submersible. But there's not much more to say about him. He didn't exactly change the face of submarine technology. But about 75 years later, Prussian carpenter Wilhelm Bauer did. Not only that, Bauer holds the distinct honor of having caused the first undersea fistfight. He was a corporal in the Prussian light horse artillery who stationed in the city of Kiel during one of Prussia's many borders disputes with the Danes. It was 1850, and Denmark had set up a blockade on this Russian harbor. And at the time, the way you fought a blockade was by loading up your boats with explosives, setting them on fire, and putting them on a collision course with the boats enforcing the blockade. And while that might sound very dramatic and tense, Bauer was actually getting pretty bored. The blockade could see the incendiary ships coming a nautical mile away. They were just wasting boats. So Bauer decided to build a submarine, thinking that from underwater, he could deliver explosives without giving the Danish fleet a chance to react. And Bauer understood what John Day hadn't, or at least couldn't put into practice. It wasn't enough to be in an airtight space. He would need a vessel strong enough to withstand the extra pressure of the ocean. At this time, now that we're into the age of steam, there was kind of these ready-made pressure vessels available uh, in the form of uh, boilers. Uh, the whole point of the submarine was to essentially make sure that it's one atmosphere on the inside. It's basically the same as it would be on sea level and to keep all the pressure on the outside. Boilers were designed to contain incredible pressures. If they could keep steam in, Bauer thought, they could probably keep the ocean out. So he worked with a local ironsmith to repurpose uh, boiler plates into a practical submarine design. He made a scale model, showed it to his superiors, and was given the go-ahead to build a full-size vessel. Basically, he made what looked like a giant toaster. It was crewed by him and two crew members, 26 feet long, 6 feet wide, about 9 feet tall. So it would be propelled forward with little hand wheels, which is not terribly practical when you consider that the vessel would have weighed about 38 tons. He called it, well, something German, but it translated to the Incendiary Diver, named after the boats that were packed with explosives and sent towards enemy ships. It's also just called the Sea Diver. It was designed to basically just crawl just under the surface to where the Danish ships were moored, 
And then basically what he had was two uh, leather gloves that were built into the hole itself. So he could actually reach through the hole with these leather gloves and then attach a mine or basically a bomb to the side of one of the Danish ships, retreat, and then explode it from a safe distance. You're kidding. It was it was a brave plan. <laughs> and leather gloves aside, the submarine worked. It could move underwater. You could steer it. And Bauer and his crew lived to tell about their first test. They never even tried to plan a mine. But the Danish fleet, watching Bauer's test runs, pulled their blockade back to a safer distance. It was a crushing moral victory. Unfortunately, the sea diver itself didn't fare as well. She attempted to dive over an uncharted crater in the seabed. It was 60 feet deep, and as she went down, her crew lost control of descent and ended up smacking it down right in the middle of the crater. So water started coming through the seams. The rivets started blasting free. Their crew panics and they try to open up the hatch so they can basically just swim out. But the problem is at this point there's 40 pounds per square inch of ocean pressure keeping that hatch closed. There was no way out. And Bauer knew that he needed to equalize the pressure by letting water into the submarine. Unfortunately, he did not adequately communicate his intentions before he starts opening up the, the seacocks, which are essentially holes, <laughs> to let to let ocean water start flooding into the sea diver. His compatriots thought he'd gone completely nuts. Uh, and then what took place afterwards was, I, I described it as, as an event never seen before in human history, which is the first submarine brawl. <laughs> Which <laughs> these two men attempted to physically prevent him from from opening the seacocks and floating the submarine. They pinned him down for four hours after you know the fist fight, of course, Lar- loudly arguing about what to do. And remember, this was the 1800s, so it's not like they had compressed air on board. The air around them just got worse and worse and worse. Four hours he spent trying to convince them <laughs> that their only hope was to do the last thing that they wanted to do, which is flood their submarine. And, you know, a a loud four-hour discussion (laughs) is a good way to burn through a lot of air. It was only going to be a matter of time until uh, until they asphyxiated. So their loud discussion came to an abrupt end when they started hearing scraping sounds from the outside of the submarine, because on the surface, rescuers are trying to grapple them with large metal hooks many of which were swinging very close to their glass portals. So finally the two men were convinced to allow Bauer to proceed with his, you know, seemingly suicidal plan, meaning uh, allowed him to flood the remaining submarine with a small air valve. And the hatch, relieved of opposing pressure, released. And the three men were actually more or less blown out of the sea diver and carried to the surface in in just a cloud of bubbles. So... They made it. The submarine, unfortunately, was never recovered. But Bauer realized the potential of his design and went to St. Petersburg, to the Grand Prince of Russia, and convinced him to fund a new submarine. He improved the design and named it the Sea Devil. It was actually really successful. Uh, They dove it 134 times. And sometimes they reached as, as deep as 150 feet. 
and the submarine itself was large enough to put a four-piece orchestra on board, which they actually did at one point in order to entertain Tsar Alexander II from beneath the surface uh, on the on when he was uh, coronated. Wait, they put a four-piece four orchestra, you said? Or? Yep, they loaded a four-piece orchestra into a submarine, dove it to the bottom of the harbor, and played it from underwater as the, uh, the new Tsar was, uh, was coronated. Unfortunately for Bauer, in Russia, success can be just as dangerous as failure. The Russian admirals deeply coveted the attention that uh, Bauer was receiving from the Tsarist court, and they ended up deciding to sabotage <laughs> his endeavors. They ordered Bauer to hold a demonstration, where he was to use the Sea Devil to sink a ship. What they didn't tell him was that they had placed the ship just past a shallow mud berm. Bauer ran right into it. Tangled her props up in underwater plants, and he was actually forced to release the emergency drop weights and surface. Uh, so he managed to escape, but the submarine was less fortunate. It flooded, moments later sank, almost took Bauer with her. Undeterred, Bauer fixed the Sea Devil. But again, this is Russia. So in typically Russian fashion, they arranged a second accident. <laughs> this time they made sure that the tiny submarine sank in waters that were entirely too deep to be salvaged. And she was never recovered. Poor Bauer. Yeah, he was okay. Uh, luckily, the, the crew of the submarine survived a second time, but his uh, reputation with Imperial Russia did not. I've, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lesson there of, like, it, it was it was people that were Bauer's problem. Like, he actually was really good at this submarine thing. <laughs> yeah, it would appear so. Um What's kind of funny about men of this era that were interested in submarines, they just kept on going back to it and back to it, uh, determined to make it work, no matter how dangerous it was. Even if their submarines earned names like uh, Fool Killer, they would still continue to go after and after this idea. Descending in a submersible you designed and built requires a particular kind of confidence. Some might call it hubris. You have to buy into the idea that you built something that can carry the weight of the ocean itself, and that you did it basically on the first try. No other invention is quite like it. What I like to do is compare the development of a submarine to the development of an airplane. Right, because airplanes can be developed more or less one innovation at a time. Before you fly a glider, you fly a kite. Before you fly a prop plane, you fly a glider. Uh, there's a very kind of straightforward evolutionary process as one new idea after another is added to a uh, to an airplane design. Submarines, on the other hand, have to get everything right the first time. They have to get the air system right or else you're going to die of asphyxiation. They have to get the ballast part of it right or else you're going to go to the bottom and you're never going to come back up again. You have to get the propulsion right or else you're not going anywhere. So, you know, again and again we see maybe an idea that has a big uh, a number of the problems solved but maybe they miss one but one is all it takes to kill you Taylor Zions is the author of The Wrecking Crew it's an incredibly fun and readable book he's working on the sequel right now I am Peter Fickright this piece was produced and its sounds were designed by Robbie Carver. 
This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance in submarines. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in two weeks with a mystery we've been trying to solve. It's about getting stuck underwater without a submarine and how long someone could really last. We'll see you then.